Romans chapter 16. We're looking at a couple verses today, verse 17 through verse 20. If you'll turn there. Go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word. Let's stand for the reading. It says this, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your own obedience, for, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of false teachers. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study this Word. Father, we do ask that You would help us today. Help me as I preach to preach Your truths, not merely my ideas. That You would open our hearts and shape us and fashion us according to the, to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the oldest crimes in our country is that of counterfeit money. Due to banks issuing their own currency, the problem was exasperated. And by 1860, it was estimated that one-third of all the currency in America was counterfeit. And so in 1865, Abraham Lincoln began the Secret Service as a way to suppress counterfeit cash, as a way to try to determine what's authentic and what is fake. And for the last two centuries now, we have developed a number of techniques, a number of tests that have been tried to determine the authentic from the fake. You might see today uh, in a particular store, a cashier pulls out a counterfeit detector pen. And they simply draw on the money, and if the line disappears, we know that your $20 bill is authentic. Seeking to discern what is true, what is right, from what is false. Now in our text today, as Paul is wrapping up the letter to the Romans, he leaves the reader with a final warning. Detect the authentic from the false. Watch out for the counterfeit. And in Paul's day, just like our day, counterfeit teachers, counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit faith was 
prevalent. Perhaps as prevalent as counterfeit cash in the 1800s. Could it be that a third of everything that promotes itself as Christianity is counterfeit? Could it be that the number is much higher than that? The percentage is much higher than that? Entire churches, entire denominations, entire movements have been so corrupted in their teaching that the teachings of that, that present as teachings of Christ could almost be just con- simply considered a false religion. Some countries have versions of Christianity that are so twisted that missionaries who are on the ground in those countries trying to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ would see their context as almost being unreached people groups, even though people consider themselves to be Christian. Now, where false teaching was once spread through actual flesh and blood people, meaning there was a day in which you had to actually meet somebody and hear that person live and see them and touch them in order to be able to be taught by them. Today, we live in a little different society where, you know, initially the radio and then the television and now YouTube and social media are able to kind of promote things and and bring things into into your home through your phone, which could be presenting something that is appealing and attractive and winsome and beautiful, and it presents as Christianity, yet it very well could be false. And so I would say this, today as much as any day, if not more than any day, today we must heed this warning. We must hear what Paul is saying to the church in Rome and hear it as if he's saying it to us today in Baltimore City. And that is this, verse 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out. Watch out. Watch out. Watch out means to look out. It means to be discerning. It means to keep your eyes open. Unlike those who clearly reject Christianity, false teachers are people who would present as Christians. You know, there are some people that you might even know in your own life who definitely teach something very wrong, and they promote something very wrong, but they don't even claim to be Christians, right? And so that's easy to kind of detect. Well, that's not Christianity. They don't claim to be a Christian. And that's a whole different situation. That's a whole different kind of watching out. But what we're talking about here are people who would actually present as Christians. They would present as people of light. And so, in a sense, a little harder to detect. We're talking about counterfeits. We're talking about ways and techniques and thinking about how do we watch out for people who present as sheep Yet, as Jesus himself called them, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, this is a different issue if we go back to Romans chapter 14 and 15. If you remember in chapter 14, we we talked about differences in the church. And Paul talks about those who, who we must bear with. You know, those who have cultural differences and differences on convictions and difference on unconscious issues and some who, who cling to this and others who have more freedom here. And Paul's saying, hey, you should bear with one another and you should seek unity with one another. 
in your differences. Now, as Paul in Romans 16, as he's ending this letter and he says, hey, I need you to watch out for some people, he's talking about an entirely different category of people. You know, the, the former, the previous people, they're the kinds of people that we ought to greet in verses 1 through 16. Greet one another, greet those who are different from you. But then as he gets into verse 17, it's almost as if he says, hey, wait a second, there are actually, there are actually some, some people that you should not greet, those that you should not welcome. And these are the false teachers. They are emissaries of Satan. They are leading you toward a Savior that cannot save. In the context of Romans chapter 16, there's somewhat of an odd shift here as we get into verses 17 through verse 20. So if you look at your text in verses 1 through 16, we see all of Paul's greetings that we talked about last week. And then in verse 17 through 20, he abruptly moves from greetings to a warning, watching out for false teachers. And then verse 21 through 24, he goes back to greetings, and then finally he ends it in verse 25 through 27 with a doxology. Now, some textual critics have argued that this is not original material to Romans. Uh, some have argued that this is some later Pauline tradition or some text that was inserted here because it just seems disjointed and it doesn't seem to flow nicely toward the end. However, I, I think that that's wrong. I think this is original, and I think there's good reason for there to be a warning at the end of Romans. One scholar says, he, he, he says it could be, this, this, this could be what happened here, is that by the end of uh, Romans 16, verses 1 through 16, Paul takes the pen from the scribe who's been writing Romans, and as Paul often would do, he would write a final note in his own hand. And so this one scholar suggests that maybe what Paul's doing is, is he's taking the pen and he's, he's writing a final note, and as he does so, he's remembering, let me give a quick word of warning. And in, in, potentially in his own hand, he writes a warning, and then a couple more greetings, and then a doxology as he closes. Regardless, it doesn't matter exactly how this letter was written. What, what I want to say is this, is that as Romans comes to a close, there is good reason for a warning. And just as you might be writing something and be reminded of something else that you want to say, and you say it, I think that's what's happening with Paul. As Paul has just gone from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 15, displaying all of the beautiful doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as he's now greeting the, the, those that he loves in the Romans ch Roman church, he's reminded that there is a threat to the gospel that remains. There is a threat that doesn't come from the outside, but a threat that can come from the inside. And I don't believe, and most scholars don't believe, that this necessarily was even in the Roman church at the time. Paul commends them for their obedience. They're not like the Galatian church, which is drifting away into a false gospel. But Paul's saying, nonetheless, there is a threat that remains. And I need you to watch out for those who twist the scriptures. Watch out for false teachers. They pervert and they corrupt. Paul says, I urge you. That's, that's written as a plea. 
He's pleading with them to keep their eyes open, to be discerning. He entreats the reader to keep an eye out for false teachers. Chrysostom puts it like this. He says, watch out means to be particular about, to get acquainted with, and to search out thoroughly the doctrines of what these people are saying. As you think about false teachers and what it means to watch out for them, Chrysostom is saying what that means is, is that you need to research what they're actually saying. You need to be very discerning with what's actually being said. You need to be particular about it. Like, wait a second, I get the bigger kind of feel of that this teacher presents, but I'm being particular about what they actually say. And what they said was not something that aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to get acquainted with this kind of teaching. You need to search out thoroughly the doctrine of what these folks are teaching. So, church, in the same way, we must watch out for false teaching. As you think about Christian sermons, Christian documentaries, teachings, those that you might look up to as mentors in the faith and what they're teaching, as you think about videos that you might watch on YouTube or on Instagram or on TikTok or wherever you're picking up your teaching of the day, as you think about podcasts that you listen to that promote themselves as Christian or faith-based podcasts, if you, as you think about even songs that you listen to, because you do know that songs teach probably even more in some ways, because they get into our head than a lecture might. We must be able to discern the authentic from what is counterfeit. Now, someone might say, well, you're preaching to the choir. Like, we're a church that takes the Bible seriously. You know, every Sunday, you guys actually sit and listen to me or someone else talk for almost an hour from the Bible. Like, good job. Well done. You know, you might be like, Joel, come on. Like, we, we love the... Some of you, if you didn't become a Christian in this church, it is likely that you are here because you were trying to find a church that took the Bible seriously. That's why you're here. Well, does a, what I believe to be a healthy church, need a warning to watch out for false teacher? Answer, yes. Why? Because past obedience never guarantees future faithfulness. Let me say that again. Past obedience never guarantees future faithfulness. This is why verse 19 is here. Look at verse 19. Paul says, everyone has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. Paul's saying, look, he's almost being apologetic in tone. He's like, I'm not saying that you're like the Galatian church so quickly drifting away to another gospel. Paul's saying, look, your reputation for obedience to Christ and the things of Christ and the doctrines of Christ, that is well known throughout, throughout, throughout my, my travels. Everybody speaks very highly of you. I rejoice when I think of how obedient you are to Christ. But even still, having said that, I want you to be wise about what is good. 
and innocent about what is evil. I want you to know and have great wisdom on why you believe what you believe and why you cling to what you believe in and why we embrace not just simply the beliefs but the behaviors and the actions and the practices of Christianity. I want you to be wise about these things. And as it relates to what is evil, I want you to be blameless. I want you to be innocent. What Paul is saying is this, is that you are never too faithful to fall. You're never too faithful to fracture. You're never too faithful to be flawless. You're never too obedient to be be drifted away by by silly myths. And so therefore, the warning is not merely for those who are listening to false teachers, but it's for those who are not. That we might cling to what is good that we might remain faithful. Are you with me? So here's how I want to spend the rest of of our time together. I want to break this down into two sections. The warning, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The warning, we're going to look about the aftermath of the false teachers, the ambition of the false teachers, and the aim of the false teachers. The warning, and then finally we're going to close with a word that Paul gives, a word of a promise, a good word. So, let's start with the warning. Paul highlights in verses 17 through 18 their aftermath, the false teacher's aim, and the false teacher's approach. And he's doing this not as some kind of like one-off teaching on false teachers. Here's who they are and here's how to detect them. It's not that at all. What Paul is saying is, is whoever they are and in whatever form they come in, They come in with this aftermath, and with this aim, and with this approach. What Paul is doing is he's trying to persuade the listener or the reader to watch out. And so that's our goal today. What do I want you to walk away with? It's this. I want you to be persuaded to watch out for false teachers. And so to do so, let's begin then with their aftermath. We're kind of like starting with the end. If this was a movie, it's sort of like, you know how some movies start with the end and then they go backward from there? That's what we're doing with my sermon here. We're we're starting with the end. If you want to be persuaded to watch out, let's begin with their aftermath. Verse 17, he says this. They cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned, keep away from them. What is the aftermath of false teachers? It is this. They leave a church with divisions, and they leave a church with stumbling blocks to the gospel. That word divisions there means schisms. These are people who, who leave a church trading their delight in community for drama. Like, I don't know if you can imagine a church where they would be so far gone from the beautiful truths of the the Gospels that when the church gathers and when they disperse, it's not about delight in the community. It's all about the drama. All they do is complain about each other. 
All they do is complain about the leaders. All they do is complain about uh, the movers and the shakers or the people that don't do anything. There's just drama. There's schisms. There's, there are divisions. In their wake, they leave factions and strife. He says also obstacles, obstacles. While temporarily attractive and appealing, they not only leave schisms, they leave stumbling blocks to the gospel. Now, obstacles here is not just simply, you know, like a little, you know, small uh, stool that you have to kind of move around in order to get to the goodness of the gospel. Stumbling block here, or obstacle, in the context of the New Testament, is actually something much more deadly than just a little sidestep. This is talking about a, uh, a, a stumbling block, a weight that is drawing your soul to hell. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, John is, or Jesus through John is writing a letter to the church in Pergamum and giving them a warning that they must repent and, unless they fall away completely. And what he says is this. He says, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block. There's the word right there to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Well, what he was saying was, was that you guys are acting, Church of Pergamum, you're acting like these people of old who listened to these false teachers. And what these false teachers did was they put some kind of obstacle in your way that actually led to your demise and to your destruction. It led to eating food sacrificed to idols, which in its day was leading to idol worship, the worship of other gods, and it led to them practicing sexual immorality. Ultimately, falling away from Jesus Christ. What this means is this. It means that the follower of a false teacher shares in the false teacher's own demise. When Mount St. Helens was about to explode, the quote-unquote experts had told the people, hey, just stay, stay, stay about eight miles away and you'll be safe. It began to bulge on the side and the experts said, that uh, it won't explode from the side. Like, it's, it's not going to be that big of an explosion. When Mount St. Helens, the volcano, when it exploded, it exploded, I just read this, with, with uh, the, the power of 500 atomic bombs. Think about that. And it devastated 250 square miles. And as a result, killed 57 people who listened to the quote-unquote experts. My point is simply this. Those who believe false teachers share in their fate. Those who follow someone who's telling a lie end up believing and sharing in the fate of the one who taught the lie. 
And so their end is destruction. Now, we got to ask the next question. So that's the aftermath. The next question is this. Why do they do it? Like, have you ever wondered, why do false teachers teach? What are they, what, what, what are they getting at? What, why, why, what is their motivation? What is their aim? That, that's my second point, their aim. Verse 18, he continues. Look at verse 18. He says, for, here's the reason. Here's their aim. He says, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own, what are they serving? Their appetites. That word there in the Greek means simply belly. They're serving their own bellies. Scholars debate who these false teachers were that Paul's referring to. It could be that he's referring to those who were called the Judaizers. They, they were people that added all of these additional rules and laws and to maintain in order to be saved from your sins. It was legalism. It was Jesus plus a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's possible that what he's saying is, is you know, literally they're serving their bellies, their dietary restrictions. Or maybe he's using belly in more of a figurative sense, and he's, and he's saying that these are people who serve their own lusts. They serve their appetites. They serve their fleshly appetites. They want to embrace immorality of all, of all kinds, or maybe of particular kinds. And so what they're doing is they're creating a version of Christianity which allows them to embrace the immorality that they want to embrace. And so here we got like legalism on one hand, could be them. On the other hand, it could be these licentious folks over here, those that permit what God forbids. Or it could be a third option, scholars say. It could be that they are people who are really serving themselves, meaning belly would be a, a, a sign of their own appetite for greed and, and their own ego. They're, they're people who have found that in the Christian community, you'll get a voice. And, you know, just like you guys right now are, are, are sitting here listening to me talk, all right, there are some folks, and, and we're all uh, 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 able to, fa- to fall, so I'm not beyond the ability to fall in this way, but there are some folks who discover that this strokes their ego, and they want the acclaim or the feeling of being, you know, important or listened to, and so they, they speak and they, they do various things uh, for their own ego, or perhaps it's not just simply to have a voice, but rather they love what they get out of it, and they're patting their pockets through the giving, the sacrificial giving of the saints. It is greed, it is money, it is cash, it is prosperity. Now, I say this, it could be all three of these as an option. I think false teaching comes in all kinds of forms, and I don't think we should consider just one form of false teaching as we think about this this morning. Jesus said this on the Pharisees, and I think this fits for everybody. Jesus said, they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. There is not one size fits all for false teachers. Anybody who would then add rules, you know, the legalistic type, 
to, to, to uh, your, your salvation. Jesus plus fill in the blank, follow my rules, would be a false teacher. Meaning anybody that would forbid what God permits would be a false teacher as it relates to earning salvation, quote-unquote. Anybody who, who would, would promote attaining goods in this world over goods in the next would be a false teacher. Preaching prosperity over the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Preaching personal success, yet silent on the success of Christ's righteousness on your behalf, meaning their gain is in this world. Their focus is on the glory of man, not God. Meaning they, they see that God is almost like this genie, this genie that they can use, are you with me, to get what they want. And so they, their Savior then is, is actually not Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but it's what Christ can get them. Because I need this in this world, and this is the way to get it. Or perhaps they are a teacher who simply permits what God forbids. Their God is the God of politics, whether that's right or left. The God of politics leads you to a God, that, that, uh, a Savior that cannot save. Their gods are the gods of the sexual revolution, creating versions of Christianity which coincide with all forms of immorality, including fornication and homosexuality, twisting scriptures, reinterpreting ideas, reinterpreting scriptures just simply to permit what they want to permit because of the cultural moray of the day. Or there's other forms of the, of the same kind of false teaching where they might be very strict on sexuality, yet they permit racism and bigotry. Meaning, whatever it is that satisfies their appetites, that's what they preach. Their Savior is their belly. And it's a Savior that does not save. Now, what they have in common is this. All of them have this in common. He simply says, they do not serve our Lord Christ. That's their issue. At the end of the day, false teachers do not serve the Christ that you and I serve. So that's why false teachers false teach. That's their aim. Now, how do they do it? Number three. Their approach. Let's talk about their approach. This is how they do it. Verse 18 continues. He says, by smooth talk. Somebody say smooth talk. Say it real smooth like. Smooth talk. And flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Flattery there, in the original language, simply means good words. Meaning they say good things to you. They say things that make you feel amazing. They say things that build you up. They say things that give you a sense of self-worth. Flattery. Smooth talk. That means nice, loving, 
or kind words. They come with nice, loving, kind words, and they say good things to you. That's their approach. You see why they're persuasive. Yet, they are cunning and deceitful. He says they do this to deceive naive people. Now, verse 20 tells us that there's a satanic influence behind this. Meaning, Satan himself parades as a child of light. Satan himself is cunning and deceitful. Satan himself, look, he don't come with a sense of like uh, horror, like you would see in a horror movie. But rather, Satan comes with beauty and with, with a draw, with, with, with a winsome nature, with an allure. And he makes you feel good and he sucks you in and then destroys you. That's why I said earlier that I believe he, we could rightly call these folks emissaries of Satan. Missionaries for Satan. Now, let's just pause for a second. Do they realize it? Do they realize that they are tools of the enemy? I suggest they don't. I don't think they realize it. Why? It's because Jesus said that these Pharisees are the blind leading the blind. The blind leading the blind, meaning the blind to their own blindness. Because someone might say, oh, they're, they're kind, they're loving, they say good words, they're nice, and this is always kind of like the big one, they're sincere. And in our day and age, if you're sincere, I can't argue with you. They don't mean harm. The blind, leading the blind. Now, why are false teachers so bad? Like, why is it that Paul, after all of what he said in Romans, he's going to close with a warning about false teachers? You see, our tendency today is to minimize the severity of false teachers. We minimize truth in favor of niceness. Meaning, because they're nice, we dismiss their error. And at times, we even adopt their error because we believe that their niceness vindicates them. So why is it that we are warned in this way? Well, here's why. It's because what you look upon, you will become. And if we look upon the wrong Christ, if we look upon a wrong Savior, a Savior that cannot save, then we will become a counterfeit Christian, an enemy of God. In his book, Confessions, Augustine talks about his friend, Olypius, who was changed by what he saw. Olypius was a man who swore that he would never participate in the gladiatorial death shows of their day. 
In ancient Rome, as you guys might know, they had the gladiator fights where they would literally be coming out and brutally killing one another, and they'd be bringing out uh, uh, religious uh, uh, folks who would be put to death and and criminals who would be... uh, uh, put to death in front of crowds, and the blood would flow, and the crowds would go crazy, 30, 40, 50,000 people at some of these events. And Olympias said, I will never go to the gladiator shows. I won't participate in that. Well, one day, Olympias went with his friends. They took him. And so he got there, and he said to himself, okay, I'm here, but I'm not going to watch it. And so as the fight begins, he closes his eyes and he only takes it in through his ears. And at a tense moment in the fight, an intense roar comes from the crowd and he opens his eyes and he sees the blood. And Augustine says, says it this way. He says, he gulped the brutality along which he did not turn away but fixed his gaze there and drank in the frenzy, not aware what he was doing, reveling in the wicked contest and intoxicated on its pleasure. No longer was he the man who had joined the crowd, but now he was the crowd. He was a genuine companion of those who led led him there. He watched He shouted, he grew hot with excitement, and he was carried away with a madness that lured him back again and again and again. Michael Reeves, commenting on this story, says, it was not that Olympias strove to change his desires, but he says he saw, and the very look was transformative. Meaning, what you look upon changes you. Now, bad news. As we look upon anything other than what is good and beautiful and right in Christ, we are changed. Good news. According to the scripture we read earlier today, as we gaze upon Christ, as we behold Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so how do we change? We don't change and become more like Jesus through trying harder and trying better. We change through doing what? Somebody say, looking, beholding, seeing Christ. That's how we change. Now, here's a challenge. Let's just be real. How do we look to Jesus? Like, what does that even mean? I say it all the time. I tell you all the time, look to Christ, see Christ, behold Christ. And then somebody says, wait a second, Jesus isn't physical. And so how do I see him? Because I can understand the gladiator story because he's literally, physically looking at something. But our challenge as it relates to our faith, as it relates to Jesus, is that we can't physically see Jesus. And so what does it even mean then to look to Christ, to behold Christ, to see Christ? Christ. 
Well, here's the answer. Biblically, we do not see with eyes of flesh, but we see Christ with eyes of faith. Meaning what we're talking about is look upon the truths. Look upon your faith of who Jesus is, of all that that means, the glorious and wonderful doctrines of the gospel. Oh, and they are glorious. I just shared the gospel a couple weeks ago with a young lady, and and her response as we talked about the substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ and what it means to trust in Christ. And I said, and, and, and on that day when you stand before God, he will not judge you based on what you've done, but he will judge you based on what Christ has done. Regardless of how wicked and vile your life has been, you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, because he placed you in Christ. And her response was, that's beautiful. It is beautiful, isn't it? These truths are beautiful. You see, our faith, here's my point, our faith is formed by what we believe is true. What we believe is true is formed by what we're taught. Meaning, let's turn that around. If we are taught a false Savior that will lead us to have false truths, which will lead us to a false faith, Therefore, we will be looking upon a Savior that does not save. This is why false teachers must be avoided. This is why we must watch out, search out, be careful, be discerning. It has everything to do with seeing Christ and seeing Him rightly. And as we see him rightly, we are changed how? From one one degree of glory to another, meaning this, we cannot separate our belief from what we become. False teachers are not just off. They're deadly. Yeah, they might be nice. They might be cool. They might be hip. They might have swag. You might want to be like them. But a false teacher, is a, even unknowingly, is a tool of Satan seeking to distract you from the only Savior that can save. So that's the warning. Let me close with a quick word here. The word is in verse 20. When I say word, what I mean is a word of promise, a good word that we can walk away with. And here's the word that... That, that Paul leaves his people with after he gives them this warning. He basically says this. He says, Christ has the final word. Christ has the final victory. Let me read it to you in verse 20. He says, he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Wow. Let me read that again. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Somebody needs to get that tattooed on their forearm. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is taking us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we saw the first false teacher. 
In Genesis 3, 15, the first false teacher comes along in the form of a serpent. And he twists the word of God. He says, did God really say that you can't even touch it? See, he's twisting the word of God. Oh, no, it's good. It's good for you. It will make you wise. You see, he's speaking good words. Smooth talk. He's taking us back to the very first false teacher. And when this false teacher led the first man and the first woman into the first sin, which then led the whole human race to fall into sin and into death under the curse of God, God did not leave this first false teacher without a curse. But in Genesis 3.15, God curses the serpent. And what he says is, is that you are going, there, there's going to be one who's going, going to come through the seed of the woman, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. There's one coming through the seed of the woman, and this one coming is going to crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. You see, one will receive a wound as if it was to the heel. And the other one will be crushed, smashed. You see, Jesus was bruised for us. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The reason that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross was because of this original sin and because of indwelling sin and continual sin and and, and voluntary and willful sin and involuntary sin in our life. People who are under the curse of sin. And Jesus came and was crushed so that we might be made whole. He was bruised so that we might live. Jesus died on the cross so that we might be saved. But then he goes on and he says that this one who's coming, while his heel is going to be bruised, a.k.a. it's not a mortal wound. Now, Jesus did die, but three days later, somebody say, Amen. He rose from the dead, meaning Satan did not crush him. He did not stop him. But this very one who's coming through the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, he says that he will crush the head of the serpent. Now, as we get here in uh, uh, Romans 16, verse 20, what we're told is that the, uh, Satan's head will be crushed under my feet. His head will be crushed under your feet. What does that mean? Well, Paul envisions the believer in Christ to the degree that the crushing blow from Christ is a crushing blow from us. How does this happen? Is this immediate or is this in the future? I think it's both. There's a sense in which it's in the immediate. As one scholar puts it, every time you choose right over wrong, the head of Satan is crushed. Every time, I mean, even right now, as we sit and we declare the truths of Jesus Christ and we sing the praises of Christ and his his victory, Satan right now is being crushed by us. There is no room for him in here. We are triumphing over our enemy in this moment. 
as you walk out of here and you're filled with such temptation and you find the strength by God to resist that temptation and to move a different way, Satan is crushed. So there's a sense in which it's immediate. But there's also a greater fulfillment of this crushing that I think Paul has in mind. And that is that day when Christ will come again. As Psalm 110 puts it, God will make his enemies his footstool. Just as my son Chapman has a little stool that he stands on to brush his teeth, God says, this is how powerful my enemies will be against me. I will make them my footstool. And I will crush them under my feet as Christ comes again. It will be the decisive victory and Satan will be forever smashed. Every wrong thought then that we have which leads us to anxieties and depression smashed. Every wrong belief which leads to sadness and pain will be crushed. Every wrong idea which leads to lovelessness and loneliness will be splintered under our feet. Now Paul closes with this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Just as God's peace is both negative and positive, meaning his peace is not just something that's uh, meaning an absence of war, but rather in this context, his peace actually means war. It means I'm coming with shalom. I'm coming to war against the devil. In the same way, grace kind of has two sides to its meaning. Grace means certainly the forgiveness of sins. The fact that God withholds judgment or places judgment on another. That's grace. But grace is also power. John Piper points this out in his, his book, Future Grace. The grace of God to us is not merely that he withholds something, but that he gives something. He gives us power. He gives us strength. And that's what he closes with here. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If I could summarize these verses, this is my own paraphrase of these verses. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, watch out for false teachers. Be on guard. They have the potential to destroy you. But take heart. Soon, Satan will be crushed under your feet. You are in a war, but you will win. However, you can't do anything on your own. None of this can be done in your own strength and in your own power. You need the power of God, and so he's closing with something like this. So may God be with you. May God's power go with you into this battle. A preacher told of his tourist days in New York City, and he said, talked about how uh, he would give these tours throughout, throughout Manhattan and the, 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 uh, uh, the souvenir that, that the tourists always wanted to buy, and almost every tourist walked away with one, was a $10 Rolex. Now, he said the problem with this $10 Rolex, though it looked like a Rolex, it was beautiful. 
The problem was it couldn't even tell time. He said these things weren't even worth $10. They were terrible watches. But then he went on to say this, and I thought it was very insightful. He said, however, fake Rolexes exist because real Rolexes exist. Meaning the, the only reason there's a cheap imitation of Christianity is because there is such a thing as real Christianity. The only reason there's a cheap imitation of Christ is because there is such a thing, saints, as a Christ who saves, as a Messiah who can deliver you from your sin. Why is it then that people turn to cheap imitations? It's the same reason that people buy a $10 Rolex. It's because they don't want to pay the price for the real thing. Now, someone might push back and say, well, wait a second. I thought salvation was free. I thought salvation is freely offered. Come to the waters and drink. You without money, come and drink. It's free. Yes, it is free. There is no price required. Come to Christ now. And what does he require of you? Your whole life. Your whole life. Free salvation. The only thing we can't bring with us is our idolatry of our sin. Our love for our sin. Meaning simply this. The very nature of a Savior is one who saves us from our sin. Therefore, there is no Christ who doesn't deliver us from sin. And that is what many people are unwilling to pay. Unwilling to walk away from their sin. They would rather cling to their sin, cling to their desires, cling to their ways, and purchase a counterfeit Christianity which allows them to have both. The best way to detect a counterfeit, according to some specialists that I read, is this. They said, you must know the real thing. Like, if you really know Rolex watches, you'd be able to tell this is not a Rolex watch. And if you really know Jesus Christ you can detect the counterfeit. That's not the Christ that I know. Notice what Paul says is that these false teachers, they deceive naive people. Saints, don't be naive. Know who Christ is. And the real Christ is the pearl of great price who's worth losing everything for. He's the man of sorrows who bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood. He's the Redeemer who purchased my redemption with his blood. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Bridegroom who washes the bride and perfects her by his own righteousness. He's the author and perfecter of my salvation. He is the bread of heaven who is my sustenance. He's the good shepherd who leads me to green pastures. 
He's the King of kings and victory belongs to Him. And He is the light of the world who brings life to all men. He is the rock on whom I can build my life on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Church, He is the way. He is the word. He is the door. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lord of all. He is the Messiah. And if you know him, say amen. Give him praise, for he is the only one who is worthy. Give him glory, for he is the only one who is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is a Savior who can save us. God, help us to be on the alert for false teachers, those who would lead us to embrace a version of Jesus, a version of our faith that is a counterfeit. Might we know Christ so as not to be naive and to cling to him and to find our joy and hope in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.